Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that would like to inform you that Big Tech is spying on you right now. He is the captain. That's why when I get out of the shower, I do one extra shake and one extra wink. It's good to see you, and it's good to be seen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very proud and happy to be featuring Cheer Team Ale by the highest and mightiest of the Indiana Brewers, the Floyds. That is three, three Floyds. Garage grade, four and a half bottle caps out of five. I love the untapped description here because it is spot on. This IPA is an instant classic. The very fruity and, may we say, juicy hop character is unrelentingly delicious. And this week's beer is brought to us by these awesome characters right here. First up, we have Laura C. from Texas. And a big We Like Your Jib from Jody from Fort Wayne, Indiana. And here's a Little Rock cheers to Jessica down in Little Rock, Arkansas. And a big cheers to Kelly in West Jordan, Utah. Next up, we go out west and say thank you to our friend Amy in Chino, California. And last but certainly not least, we have Shelby who is a big Captain fan down in Jaguar country, down in Jacksonville, Florida. Everybody we just mentioned went to truecrimegarage.com and contributed to this week's beer fund. And for that, we give you many, many thanks. There's so many things on the website. Make sure you sign up on the mailing list so you can get sent discount codes for the store page check out our t-shirts we got a bunch of new merchandise in. a ton of new merchandise the store the garage store it exploded it's like walmart it's huge <laughs> i mean there's so much but with better stuff i no, right <laughs> that's why it's more like tarjay there you go so check that out at truecrimegarage.com make sure you leave us a five-star review and download the stitcher app check us out on stitcher if you want to check out one of our old episodes and we have a weekly show. If you can't get enough of the True Crime Garage, check out Off the Record on Stitcher Premium. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. On the evening of March 6, 1962, 
29-year-old taxi driver Neville Knight was picking up fares in Sydney's west side. Neville was retired from the Navy, where he was a Morse code expert. After the Navy, he thought he would drive a cab, making some money while driving around. It would be like he was his own boss. Recently, he had been wanting to get out of the cab business. He was married and had a three-year-old daughter at home. But daytime jobs were hard to come by. So he figured, with bills to pay and mouths to feed, he would just keep driving the cab until he found something better. It was late in the evening when he picked up a boy in Moore Bank. As usual, the boy opened the back door of the cab and sat down behind Knight. Knight thought the boy to be about 16 years old, and he was happy to take him wherever he needed to go, for a fee, of course. The boy gave instructions on where he needed to go, but other than this, he said very little. They got just about to where they were heading when they ran into some trouble. Knight drove to Fairfield West as instructed, but once there, the boy was unsure of the exact location. He was looking for a house, but it was a place he had only been one time before, and he was having some trouble remembering just where the house was. But he said, I'll know it when I see it. Knight didn't care. He had a whole shift to finish, and better to be driving around with someone in the car running up the meter. They continued driving up and down streets, looking for the house. Knight was driving just under 40 mile per hour when he heard a loud explosion. Reacting to the deafening noise, Knight tried to slam on the brakes, but the car continued. He then tried to push in the clutch, but he could not feel nor move his leg. He quickly grabbed the handbrake and pulled. The car screeched, swerved, and then came to a stop. The boy in the back seat jumped up and hopped out of the vehicle. He then opened the front door to the cab. Neville Knight was still very unsure of what had just happened. He was in pain and he couldn't seem to move either of his legs. Thank God he was not alone. And now I've got to tell this boy to go and get some help, he thought. Now with the front door open, the boy looked inside. He said nothing. He stared at Neville, slowly studying him with his eyes. And then just like that, the boy ran off into the darkness. Many people travel to Australia for many, many different reasons. It's a popular destination for outdoor enthusiasts. People go there for all kinds of things, hiking, camping, and just traveling the land by different means of travel. Now, like in the U.S., at one time, hitchhiking was commonplace. In fact, it was even encouraged and enjoyed, especially by the younger travelers low on funds. It was a cheap and adventurous way to get from place to place. Hitchhiking in Australia, for the most part, was considered to be safe, this being decades ago, if you were traveling in pairs or in a group. Now let's start off on January 25th, 1990. We have a young man here named Paul Onions. He's 24 years old. Now he's from the UK, but he is in Australia on holiday. He had been there for about a month, traveling, seeing the sights, and getting around by several means of travel. But on this day, he was looking to hitch a ride. He was looking to hitchhike. So he's standing out at the edge of the Hume Highway. Some sections of this are now known as the Hume Freeway or Hume Motorway. This is one of Australia's major intercity national highways, spanning over 500 miles, and it runs between the major cities of Melbourne and Sydney. Now, Paul is about a mile or so from the Belanglo State Forest. He's got his thumb in the air, but he's having no luck, really, so far, with any offer for a ride. So he starts walking south. Eventually, 
He decides to take a break, stopping off to grab a drink and a snack. It is here that a man approaches Paul. The man is muscular with a dark mustache, and he introduces himself as Bill. They get to talking, and eventually Bill offers Paul a lift. Paul told Bill where he was hoping to get to, and Bill agreed that he would drive him over 200 kilometers. Paul and Bill climbed into Bill's silver four-wheel drive, and they drove off. As they were driving south, the normal conversations took place. Now, this drive could be a long one. It's probably going to be maybe a three-hour drive at most. So after about an hour, according to Paul, Bill started getting weird. He was looking around a lot as he drove. His behavior, voice, and words were becoming increasingly aggressive and angry. He was spouting out racial slurs left and right. This, of course, is making Paul very, very uneasy. He doesn't know this man, and this man is behaving strangely. Bill stops the vehicle. He's telling Paul that he's got to retrieve some cassette tapes from the trunk of the vehicle so that they can listen to them. Now, Paul is already on edge, right? And he looks over and he sees cassettes inside the vehicle. So the reasoning for stopping is not making a lot of sense to Paul. This is enough to make Paul seriously question what this man named Bill could be up to. After Bill got out of the vehicle, Paul did as well. This apparently upsets Bill. Basically, with a growl, he tells Paul to get back in the vehicle. Paul decides he better play along. Bill reaches under the seat and he pulls out a revolver, sticking the nose of the gun in Paul's face. Paul says he could see the shiny bullets in the cylinder. Bill tells him that this is a robbery. Then he produces some rope. Paul is terrified. He jumps out of the vehicle. He runs as fast as he could right into oncoming traffic. Bill is now yelling at Paul. And then he starts pulling the trigger. The cars swerve to avoid hitting Paul, but they just keep on driving. Finally, Paul is able to flag down a van. He jumps in from the sliding side door. Paul is screaming to the people inside. He's got a gun. He's got a gun. The driver sees the man with the gun. The man appears to be going back to his vehicle. The driver is Joanne Barry, and with her is her sister and five kids. Joanne is desperate to get away, and she does not want the man with the gun following her, especially with the van full of kids. Joanne goes in reverse, makes a U-turn, and now facing the opposite direction, she slams the pedal to the floor and speeds off. She drives Paul to a police station. There he reports the attack. He gives a description of the man and tells them the man that he knows only as Bill said that he is a road worker. He also provides a description of the gun and the vehicle. Now, Paul, he was like super panicked, right, when fleeing this vehicle. So, of course, he left behind everything that he brought with him. He leaves behind his backpack. This held everything that Paul was traveling with, including his passport. So not only does he provide them a description of the man, the gun, the vehicle, and some of the things that this man, Bill, told him, he also leaves them a good description of the items he left behind in Bill's vehicle. Now, police did send out the description of the man and the vehicle. They were looking for this man who attempted to commit an armed robbery. That's the way this was reported. Nothing came of the search for the armed robber. They never found the suspect, never made an arrest. By June of 1992, the missing persons unit was quite busy, as missing persons cases, they were piling up at a faster pace than normal. The Sydney Morning Herald ran several articles regarding this, one by Christian Rayo. This was particularly interesting. It says police were optimistic in one of the cases. This was of two missing women, Caroline Jane Clark and Joanne Leslie Walters, both 22 years old, were visiting Australia, and they were there on a working holiday. Police were optimistic that they would find the women alive and well. This is because they received over 100 calls from people all over the place, 
saying they have seen the two English women. The women were missing sometime, it's believed to be like April of 1992. A large number of calls were coming in from the Northern Territory and from Darwin. Police were hoping to confirm the sightings of these women. They were able to get a copy of what is believed to be Caroline's last letter. Two missing women were traveling Australia and securing fruit-picking jobs along their way. The letter was written from Queenstown, postmarked April 8th. This letter stated that they intended to go to Sydney and then to Canunyara. I know that I did not say that right there, Captain. This was for a fruit-picking job that was supposed to last four weeks. Then they would continue on to Ayers Rock. So police were optimistic about the sightings. However, the problem here is none of the ladies have contacted family or touched their bank accounts since April. The article that I read was from late June, so about two months or so that it's believed that they possibly have been missing. Police figured out that Clark and Walters checked out of a King's Cross Backpackers hostel. This too in April, and this is the last confirmed sighting of the two women. What they were looking into is if there is any possibility that this could be connected to the December disappearance of a young couple from Germany. That young couple, just like the two English women, their last known whereabouts was a King's Cross backpacker hostel. The missing German couple is Gabor Neubauer, 21 years old, and Anya Havsheed, age 20. So by this point in our story, Captain, we have four missing persons, four that have made the papers anyway, and this is June of 1992. Now on Saturday, September 19th, 1992, two men found a body in the Belanglo State Forest. This was around 4.15 in the afternoon. This is in one of the more dense forest areas of the state forest. The men were out on an orienteering exercise, practicing their skills near the long acre fire trail. The body was well hid. In fact, they only found it because they were investigating a terrible smell that they thought could be coming from a kangaroo carcass, which of course was not the case. The body was wedged under a rock ledge and partially covered with shrubbery. The next day, police working the scene found a second body just about 40 meters from the first. The second body was hidden by bushes and was badly decomposed. Detectives on the scene told reporters that although they could not immediately name the cause of death or identify either victim, they said they were investigating a double homicide. Now, using dental records, they were able to determine the identity of both of the victims. Investigators learned that their victims are Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters, both missing since late April of 1992. Caroline Clark's head and face were wrapped and covered with a maroon sweatshirt. She had been shot 10 times through the top of her head. She was stabbed twice in the back and stabbed once in the chest. I believe this was an attempted single stab to the heart. Joanne Walters was found gagged using pieces of her shirt. She had been cut and stabbed many times, with one of these stab wounds severing her spine, which would have left her paralyzed during her fight in an attempt to flee from her attacker or attackers. Now, reports vary on the level of mutilation here, with stabs reported as high as over 30 times and as little as 20 times. Either way, what we're looking at here is a frenzied knife attack that killed her. One of the things that I find extremely interesting here is the statements by the investigators, right? Very early on in this investigation, they are saying that they would be expecting to find more bodies. All right, we have two victims. We already have two victims. So I can see where they're stating, hey, in this very dense forest location, in a place where bodies would be extremely hard to find and locate. You know, these bodies aren't just lying on the the trail there. They're off, well off of the trail, and they're concealed, almost buried under brush. 
even the descriptions in some cases describe the bodies as that, as being buried. And then the other one like stuffed behind bushes and things like that. The interesting thing here too is one, they are seeing things at this crime scene, at the murder scene, where they, it's very obvious to them that they are looking for potentially more bodies. The other thing you got to wonder too, we described the injuries and what could be the cause of death in both cases. There's a lot of overkill involved in each of these attacks. So maybe that as well is leading them to making the statement. The thing here as well, we have the transient lifestyle that the two victims were living at the time of their disappearance. This also certainly drastically increases the chances that we might be looking at a stranger-on-stranger murder or strangers-on-strangers attack and murder. The Belanglo Forest, let's talk about this location where these two victims' bodies were found. This is an important aspect to this crime and to this case, and it will also help to steer the direction and the focus of their investigation. The state forest is in New South Wales and located three kilometers west of the Hume Highway. This is a popular park open to the public, and it features trails for hiking, dirt bikes, quads. There are creek crossings and plenty of camping areas. The state forest is quite big, and it looks like the most populous trees there are pine. I was able to find actually the you know how big of a location this is. However, the tra- trying to figure out how to transfer that into our system gets a little complicated for me. Remember, didn't go to school for math. That was a little bit of computer that I was studying. Now, on October 5th, 1993, again, we are in the Belanglo State Forest, and again, we are near the Long Fire Acre Trail. A man, he is out collecting firewood. He found another body. This discovery led to another finding. Lying just 20 meters away was an additional body. Later, it was determined that they located the bodies of Deborah Everest and James Gibson. These two were missing for about four years. See, in late 1989, the two took off together on a backpacking adventure. They were both just 19 years old at the time. Both were recently accepted into college, so this was supposed to be one of those last big adventures before they get serious about going to school. Before leaving, James told his mother that they intended to hitchhike their way around, to which she tried to talk him out of. She was warning him that hitchhiking was very dangerous. Deborah last made contact with her parents, calling home on December 28th. There was an earthquake that day, and she called home to tell them that she and James were all right. Now, two days later, the young couple left a communal house in Surrey Hills. The night before, they were telling others there that they intended to hitchhike their way down south. Three months later, James Gibson's red backpack was found on the roadside, and Deborah's camera was found nearby. But no one knew what happened to the young couple for all of that time until these bodies were found. A strange thing here, Captain... Those two items, James's backpack and the camera, after the bodies were found, we would learn that the backpack and the camera were nowhere near the location of the bodies. This is, in fact, many, many miles apart. Apparently, the killer or killers drove these items extremely far away before tossing them on the side of the road. Deborah was found hogtied. Her skull and jaw were fractured. It does not seem like early on that law enforcement were certain of the cause of this fracture, but it looks like the cause of death was the stab wounds to her head. The Sydney Morning Herald reported James was stabbed multiple times, including one through the spinal cord. Also, stab wounds that punctured his lungs. And as the Herald put it, in both cases, extreme force had been used, and it seemed that the victims had not been able to defend themselves. Now, we already mentioned police saying that they were expecting to find more bodies. Well, now they're pretty clear about this statement. Publicly, they start stating that the murders were connected, believed to be connected, 
and that they were searching for a serial killer or killers. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch. To Mint Mobile. All plans come with high speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. 
Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we are back. He is back. I am back. Before we get cranked up too much here, Captain, I do want to thank a big thank you to our friend. Wait, hold on. I'm already cranked. Uncrank yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, big thank you to Cairo. He's the uh, B-shirt guy that we met a couple weeks ago. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, thank you, Cairo, for the awesome beers. All right, Captain, we have still plenty to get to here. Because on November 1st, 1993, we're now in a location that's about five kilometers away from where the bodies of Deborah and James were found. The body of Simone Schmidl was found in this location. Simone was 21 years old from a town near Munich. She was visiting Australia and traveling around. Now, on January 20th, 1991, she was traveling solo. And she told some friends she planned to catch a train to Liverpool and then hitchhike her way down the Hume Highway. After this, she is never seen alive again. Now, some of her items were found four months after her disappearance. Simone had multiple stab wounds and was stabbed twice through her spine. Three days later, on November 4th, 1993, the bodies of Gabor Nugenbauer and Anya Habsheed were found just about one kilometer east of where Simone's body was located. Both were missing since Christmas of 1991. This is the missing German couple that we discussed earlier. Gabor was double gagged, one stuffed in his mouth and one tied around his head. He had been strangled, and looking through all this, I could not figure out if it was thought to be manual or ligature strangulation, but the reports are that the hyoid bone was broken. He was also shot in the head six times. Anna was found under a pile of logs, branches, and debris. She was face down and naked from the waist down. She had been decapitated from what was determined to be a single blow from a heavy bladed object such as a sword or a machete. We are now at seven bodies found total. In three of the cases, we have two persons traveling together. Only one case out of the four do we have someone traveling solo. What is common throughout, we have witnesses or people who saw or spoke to the victims shortly before they went missing, stating that the victims were believed to be hitchhiking their way around. At some of the sites where the bodies were found, not too far from where the bodies themselves were located, we have evidence that the killer spent some time hanging out in the area. This could be days leading up to the killings, meaning in separate visits entirely, or immediately after the killings. What they found was evidence of a campfire near the attacks. Plus, at one of the body dump locations, they found like a makeshift 
firing range where the shooter shot up trees, bottles, and cans. Now, at this makeshift shooting gallery, they found tons of shell casings, spent bullets, and so on. They found two different calibers at one site. Now, they were able to determine from the debris left behind by the shooter that all of this stuff had been there about the same amount of time. This meaning that the two guns were fired the same day or night. Not not a situation where one target, you know, one's target shooting and then returns at a later date with a different gun for more target practice. Right. It looked to the detectives as though the offender had a silencer on the twenty two. Which okay. this also makes you believe that one, we have multiple cases where there's two victims and there's different wounds. So law enforcement might think, okay, well maybe we have more than one killer. And now we have a situation where we have somebody shooting off guns, but there's two calibers that would also lead to the idea that maybe that there's more than one individual. Yeah. And sorry, I think I jumped ahead here in my notes, captain, they were able to determine that one of the calibers that was used at this uh, shooting gallery, let's say, was a twenty-two, and they could tell by markings on the bullets that the a silencer was being used with the twenty-two. Well, and also with a gun being involved, especially in the three cases of the couples, that would also lead one to believe that maybe there was only one attacker because you could control two individuals with a gun. Yeah, let's we'll get into that in just one second here. But before we do so, I want to point out that, you know, we have law enforcement very early on with the statement of we're expecting to find more bodies. And then when they do, in fact, find two more bodies, their next statement is we think we're looking for a serial offender or serial killers here. Mm -hmm. What is confirmed at some point after seven bodies are found we learned that the there are matching 22 caliber bullets, shell casings, and cartridge boxes that were found at multiple crime scenes. Mm-hmm. So not only were they suspicious of this and thinking that they were looking for a serial killer or killers, now they have confirmation of evidence left behind that these attacks and murders are, in fact, connected. Well, in at least two of the cases, we have a... Uh, spinal cord being severed. That is not a very typical injury that you see in murders. Yes. And you know, we've talked about this before with the Lindsay Buziak case. It's for me personally, it's awfully difficult to determine if that is in fact deliberate or if in a frenzied attack that maybe it just, it's just happenstance that it occurred yeah. I feel like in Lindsay's case, it could have just occurred. Like I, I lean more that way, right. but with some of these, it, it appears to be much more deliberate. Yeah. I, it's, it's strange to me because the amount of wounds, you know, or amount of times that somebody shot or stabbed to me, there's a rage element here, but then there's a calculation element in here as well. Welcome to the segment of armchair styling and profiling with the captain and Nick. Um, but I also think there's a element of calculation here because we see in again, multiple cases where the spinal cord is severed, but you also have these, this time and this could be happenstance as well, but punctured lungs. It's almost like this person is creating a scenario where they, they want the person to, suffer through this these are kind of suffer wounds if that makes any sense well and the need to like incapacitate them and make it so that they are unable to flee or to fight back during the course of whatever left what is what is left of the attack right and then then you also wonder you sever one person's spinal cord they can't move they're paralyzed now you can do whatever you want to the other victim and almost make the person like, like I said, suffer in pain, but also suffer through the attack of the other individual. Okay. So let's go through the psychological profile of the killer or killers. Now 
there were several profiles actually worked up for these cases, worked up by psychiatrist and criminologist. What I did here, Captain, to save us some time is I tried to combo them for one master profile. So first, as you were pointing out, it was tricky, right? They, they are uncertain if they should be looking for one or two killers. Police were having trouble with this, and mainly for reasons that you already pointed out, but just to simplify, they were having trouble with how just one person could lure, in most cases, two victims into the forest, control them, and murder both of them. Plus, we have three cases where we have two victims in those cases. In these incidents, one victim is more mutilated than the other. So could it, in fact, be two killers? This was strongly argued in at least two of the profiles that were put forward. And in both of these, they cited that brothers would be more likely to be the the team of offenders here. Often when we have two offenders, there is a more dominant personality of one offender and then a more follower type for the other. Right. The profiles that pushed the two offender theory cited this as the likely cause for the differing levels of mutilation between the victims. The other difficult thing here is the crime scenes where it appears that two victims are controlled, attacked, killed, and partially buried or concealed in separate locations. Yeah. Be it close together, but still separate. So what they're getting at here, captain is that two offenders, this is certainly possible. Right, it's the idea of, okay, we, we've now attacked our victims. All right, move your victim to a spot where they couldn't be found. And so if they're separated on some level, then you would, then the bodies would be separated more once you go to conceal them. Mm-hmm. Where if you have one killer, he attacks his victims, he, he drags one of the victims into a, a secluded spot where he thinks this makes the most sense, and then you drag the next victim to the same spot. Yeah, and I think that the reason why they're pointing out this this scenario here is that you likely have two offenders because they seem to be choosing two victims. And then the thought on top of that is, why are we finding one victim here and then one here when we know that they were once together? Is that possibly that the offender wanted privacy from the other offender mm-hmm. with the victim? Right. So a lot of a lot of uh, analysis going on here with these crime scenes. Yeah, and some pretty detailed analysis too. I don't know if I buy this idea that based off what evidence we have that you can say, well these we think they're brothers. If the, if there's two killers, you know, the idea that you're one stating pretty early on we have a serial killer and we're going to find more bodies and then you go okay not only do we have a serial killer but we have a a duo serial killer team and they're brothers yeah we we actually have two profiles that were put forward that that shared that thought Mm -hmm. Um, not outwardly saying that they have to be brothers but that was something that they were leaning towards in their profiles i just wish i knew if there was something more if they had some more evidence uh, whether that was some kind of, I don't know, f- so, fingerprint or or something that would lead them to believe that there would be they would be related. I don't think that it was evidence that was found as far as like fingerprints or or anything of that nature. What they're pointing out here is in cases that they have seen in the past. Look, it is it is very rare, and I know that everybody's going to think of three or four or five cases immediately as soon as I say this. But it is rare for there to be a serial killer team. It's it's often they work alone. Right. This is not Batman and Robin. Yeah. And then even more rare than that would for it to be relation Mm -hmm. that are working together. I can't name one. So they they don't have there. There were some cousins in Florida. Um, Of course, there there were actually brothers in Ohio back in the seventies that I think were were the. they were looking for the twenty-two caliber killer, I believe was the the moniker that was applied to yeah. those cases, and it turned out to be two offenders, and they were brothers. Um, you, so, you wonder, though. So I it mean, does happen. Yeah, but you, you said there was a twenty-two caliber in this case as well. Yeah. 
you wonder if it's just, you know, they're doing some research and going, okay, well, in Ohio, they were looking for killers and it happened to be brothers, you know, which I mean, first of all, you just don't trust brothers from Ohio. That's number one rule. So the, the reason why I think that they're coming up with this and it's difficult because it is, as you pointed out, such a small sample size mm-hmm. to, to come up with this evidence They're they're looking for similarities between solved cases and and what they think that they're looking at. And I think where they go to the point of saying that the offenders might be brothers or related, I I think I might have taken it a step too far. Maybe one of the profiles just said some relation. But they're saying that they've seen in the past that the victims are separated for the purpose of privacy, and they usually see this when there is a relation between the two offenders Mm -hmm. where if the two offenders are more just friends or in on this, this thing together, sick hobby together that they actually feed off of each other more so than what brothers or, uh, related offenders would. Mm -hmm. So two offenders, this is certainly a possibility, but let's go through some other stuff that we know, right? We have evidence regarding the Paul onions, situation that attack he was picked up by one man not two and when the man using the name bill tried to kill him he shot at him so now when creating this profile to be completely fair to all that were putting these profiles forward at this time the experts there were not armed with the information that this paul onions attack may in fact be connected right so Looking at this information that we know, Captain, we now can add crimes where we know that a gun was used. And we know that from what we found with our dead victims, but we also know that with Paul Onion's situation. Adding the use of the gun to the equation means a signal killer may possibly been able to control more than one victim at a time. So starting there, are we looking for one or two? Let's let's go to that maybe we're looking for just one offender because the other profiles set out for one offender. So this one offender would be somebody who owns and is very comfortable around guns. This man would be average, living an ordinary life. Given the physical nature of his crimes, he would be fit and possibly athletic. Expect him to be fairly intelligent. He is a loner, but he is outwardly sociable, a talker. He lives on the outskirts of a city or in a semi-rural area. Right. He is employed in a semi-skilled job, probably works outside. He has a history of aggression against authority. He likely has a record of some kind, police record, they mean, and may view himself as some type of outlaw. They also struggle to come up with the offender's possible age in these profiles. This, as we have pointed out several times in many other cases, this is one of the hardest details to estimate. But again, we have a possible eyewitness. So if we go back to the story of Paul Onions, the, the survivor, right. if he was in fact attacked by the same man, we have a general idea based off of his description of the man's age. And so for the single offender profiles, they put the man's age as being in his 30s or 40s. He's a man, they say, that fits into his surroundings. He could be a co-worker, neighbor, or a friend, meaning kind of like the Delphi situation, he's hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. He's probably married or in a stable relationship. I like how they throw this little thing in here, too. Even though she may not know it, to him the relationship may be unsatisfactory. <laughs> uh, See, if I was a profiler, I'd throw in some weird stuff, just like, I don't know why you had to point out that he had a criminal record because I don't think anybody was thinking he has a world record for long jump or anything. But oh, I, I think, you mean me clarifying yeah, that yeah. it's a criminal record. But I think if I was profiling, I'd throw in like one or two things that I knew weren't true, but also didn't matter that people would just read over and be like, he, he also likes peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you know, like some random fact. Some of this next stuff to me seems a little vague and I, and I'm, I, maybe I'll just get into it as we go through it to not to, not to confuse anybody here. But so 
They say he gets a sexual and likely an emotional satisfaction from controlling and killing his victims. But ultimately, he kills for pleasure, for the thrill, simply because he enjoys it. Now, although he may not have had intercourse with the victims, he got his kicks by expressing his bizarre deviations through sadistic aggression, mutilation, and finally their execution. So, yeah, and there's something, you know, he could go back. We see this from time to time where they're not actually sexually assaulting the victims, but then they're going home and uh, thinking about it and playing, you know, long games of flicky flicky. Yeah, and I, I mean, I totally get what they're saying here. There is some suspicion that, you know, I and I know that they're saying in these profiles that the crimes are sexual in nature, whether or not he's raping or sexually assaulting the victims. There does seem to be some evidence at these crime scenes that there was at least some fondling or, or something right. going on during the course of these attacks. And again, it's one of those things that you also then question... I think if you're taking two victims, and especially when you have a female and male combo, that it'd be less likely that it'd be for sexual reasons. Um, because if it was purely, you know, sexual reasons, then why wouldn't you just take a victim that was, you know, that the single type victim that you're looking for? You know, if you're does that make sense? Oh, 100%. Uh, I think what, what we might be looking at here, though, Captain, is, and I, and I hate to use some of these terms, but, but it only makes sense. I think it's the, you know, where he is hunting plays into a factor of that, right? So mm-hmm. it, it, whether or not it be two offenders or one, we have a situation where, as you said, we got couples, um, at least in two of the cases we have a couple Mm -hmm. and yes, it would be a lot easier for a single offender and two offenders to commit these crimes against one person. The problem is I think regarding this specific situation, we noted at the start of this episode that hitchhiking was considered to be somewhat safe, but we pointed out that that is considered to be safe when you're traveling as as a group or with another person. Right. I mean, you see this a lot. There's a lot of Americans that go over to Europe right after high school or or sometime during college to go backpacking uh, through Europe. And, and you also see this in Australia as well. So having that as a part of your culture and also a part of your economy, this also leads towards well, this, these are also easier prey because one, they're looking for rides. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're a, willing to get into the vehicle. Well, they're, yeah. Cause they're if also, in fact, that's how he's picking them up. Well, and if you ever stayed at like a youth hostel or any, you know, hostel is, you know, you might be in a room with four other strangers. You're going to fall asleep in a room with, you know, four other strangers or however many strangers are in that room. Um, you know, unless you want to pay for like, you know, so you're separated, but most people don't. And so you're already in a situation where you're going, let's, let's see the world and let's explore this country. And, and we have to be trusting of all these strangers that we meet along our journey. Um, so it's really a, it's really a perfect scenario to, um, to just kind of sit there and pick and choose who you want to pick up. Well, and, but, but what I mean by this is not, more so that he's doing it out of necessity rather than as a preference. Okay, so well, like... right, right, right. Because, well, first of all, somebody's going to be... It's more likely if somebody's traveling alone, it would be male than female. And so... And the, the chances of anybody really doing a venture like that on their own is, is probably way less of a percentage as doing it with a, a group of people. Yeah, there were some cases in this area that we're talking about that took place in the 70s, uh, some of them being unsolved murders and unsolved missing persons cases, where the the victim was believed to have been hitchhiking at the time by themselves. And so it was kind of known and commonplace throughout this area that, that you don't do this type of activity by yourself, that you should be with, with another person or a group. And therefore... 
I mean, he might, he might've just been doing this because that's all he could get into his car. And we have Ed Kemper who told, told us that, you know, it was much easier for him to get two girls in the car at one time rather than, than one. They're, they're just more trusting when they have somebody else to go along with them. Well, and I was thinking about this the other day because we talk about controlling, you know, we've talked about this a lot, you know, we've done 300 plus episodes, but there's a lot of times where we go, okay, how did they get the victim into the car or how did they control two victims? And I actually think controlling two victims wouldn't be as hard as, as I've initially thought. And that's because let's say you have a gun or a knife or whatever you have and you're controlling, you only have to control one of the individuals that other individual chances are is not going to take off and run for it because what are you doing if you do that? Right. It's inevitable that the person that you're leaving behind is a goner. Right. And, and they've actually, you know, some people will cite cases where a serial killer has, has looked for a couple, especially specifically like a married couple or a, um, female and male couple because they find that sometimes, as you said, if you can just control one of the individuals, essentially you're controlling both of them. Mm -hmm. And that's also what has been often speculated and, and theorized in the Delphi murders case. Right. That yes, would it be more difficult? Yes. But given the relationship of the two involved, it might have just been equally as easy to control both. And, and there's been many people that have said, look, those two, neither of them would have run or left the other alone. They were there for each other. So, right. And you see this also like with the Zodiac. And- yeah. So continuing on with this uh, profile here, Captain, the next thing is he he would keep items belonging to his victims that he considers to be trophies. Some of this stuff is, as you pointed out earlier, psychological. But some of this is also created by evidence, the profile itself. Right. What we know here is we have these individuals that have been murdered that, yes, they are out in the middle of, you know, nowhere, essentially, in an area that is very difficult to search and to find actual evidence. But we have multiple situations where it looks like these victims are missing some of their belongings or all of their belongings. So the evidence would tell you this is this is something that might be psychological, but probably more more added to the profile because of the evidence that is involved. Right. We found these people, but we didn't find their stuff. It had to go somewhere. They believed that the offender or offenders would be keeping some of the items belonging to the victims, and they may consider these to be trophies. Now, one forensic psychologist in his profile stated that he's talking about a single offender said, quote, he's bad rather than mad. He's evil. He's not crazy is what they're pointing out there. Mm-hmm. And one, one thing that is strange here to me is this reminds me in a sense, portions of this profile remind me of Jack the Ripper a little bit. So somebody who, kills for pleasure and that the killer, the killings are in fact such sexual in nature as they say in the profile, though he may not be having sex with them. Let's take this a step further when comparing it to somebody like Jack the Ripper. And this is, this is also stuff that they state in the profile of these killings as well. Look, this is difficult terrain. This is an area that's not familiar to everyone. And so what they want to point out here is that this guy He hunts and he kills in an area where he is familiar and comfortable. That's just like Jack the Ripper did back in the day. The difference here to me, what I see is a situation where Jack the Ripper hated women. The backpack murderer, he hates everyone. Right. He just hates people. And it seems more so like, especially those that he considers to be different from himself. If if we're going to t- go through this and believe that they are right in the sense that he hunts and kills in an area that he is not only familiar but comfortable with, mm-hmm. it's not a stretch to believe that he's not that he's 
you know, from that area, lives in that area, and it was born and raised in that area as well. And we have some of our victims here are are foreign to the land. Right. So then you, you wonder if he just doesn't like foreigners or if, or if it, it makes it easier to. I think it would make it easier. I mean, think about it this way. Like they're not from this country and it's also of a time period where communication isn't instantaneously, right? You're not going to be able to, they're not texting people, right? Right. So it's like somebody goes missing for a couple of weeks. It's going to take a while for for that to get back to their family if they're from Europe or whatever. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's part of it, or be, but also maybe there's some psychology to it where it's this guy, this individual feels like he's stuck and he's stuck in a a place that he can't get out of, and and maybe he is somewhat intelligent, maybe somewhat skilled, and he and he feels kind of trapped by um the society he lives in and and these people are they're they're roaming the the world and they're seeing the sights and they they have uh nowhere to be you know what i mean no no destination well and on top of that too like what they point out in silence of the lambs if the killer can how, see how, the victim many, i'm going to call you name dropper how many cases uh, are you going to name um throughout this episode i got a few more in my notes here okay. but um in in the in the silence movie of silence of the lambs they point out that it is it's easier for the killer to kill the victim if they don't see them as a person if they see them as an object and right. some of the victims being from a foreign land maybe they don't talk the same as our offender maybe they don't look the exact same as our offender maybe that in a way makes it easier throughout the interactions with those individuals to see them as an object, maybe yeah. even faster. Because the other thing you have to wonder too is, are there people, if he is in fact finding the victims by way of hitchhiking, are there people that he's let go for any number of reasons mm-hmm. throughout this? I mean, there's a lot to consider here. There's a lot to think about. Well, another thing about that too is if you pick up, hitchhikers for example right like you're just pulling up you can size up individuals a little bit right from Mm -hmm. inside your car while you're pulling up but you take uh, a scenario where you or maybe the uh the guy appears a little bit larger once you once he gets in the car you know now you you start going okay well this girl seems strong and this guy seems strong. So maybe these are, these are people that he can then just take to their destination and, and move on. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it, it is a way of, you know, and I would, I would assume like Ed Kemper would do the same thing. You now have them in the car. You can kind of size them up. You can kind of see if, if they fit your likings and if they don't, uh, you can, you can just drop them off at the next exit. Right. Also, one thing here, Captain, that I want to point out before we move on that that I think is fascinating. I think that we have somebody that I would dub like a choice of weapon killer. But on top of that, we have a choice of victim type killer, right? Both male and female in some of the cases. And that's fascinating in a sense because we often do not see both genders killed by one offender. So this, again, may be pointing back to two offenders. And then we have multiple weapons, implements of murder, gun, yeah. knife, and rope sometimes. Sometimes all three are used. Right, but I, again, I think that points a lot of profilers to the idea that there's more than one attacker. I kind of view that as when, when we talk about the sexual gratification that the person is getting, right? That... If that is true, uh, if they are getting that, and that's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around, it's probably hard for a lot of us to wrap our head around. Um, but, and if you're, if you are wrapping your head around it, you might want to go talk to somebody, Mm. but, um, the, the thrill or the sensation is probably different with gun, different with knife. I mean, we have a scenario where, where we know there was a knife involved. We know there was a gun involved. We know there was strangulation. We don't know if there was uh, rope or not, right? Mm-hmm. But 
so those are three different acts. And then also when you have uh, the decapitation, and I don't mean to be so gory, but with this decapitation, we don't know if this was a machete or some kind of sword. So it's almost like, like you were saying, like this person is knows he's going to pick his victims and then he's going to have all these things with him because he wants to, I think he wants to try killing in different manners and with different instruments to see if there's different uh, sexual gratification. Mm-hmm. Which is, which reminds me of a Zodiac communique. The, the one that where he states by fire, by gun, by knife, by rope. Again, we want to thank you guys so much for joining us each week in the garage. Our buddies, our pals. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Our filthy animals. A thousand thank yous. A thousand filthy animals. Thank you so much, and thank you for sharing on social media. Join us back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, don't live. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com/music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel.